Well, welcome everybody. Um, slightly different format this time. This is uh, a new episode of the Art Business Podcast. My name is David Belling, I'm Programme Director of the uh, Master's Degree in Art Business at Sotheby's Institute of Art London, which you can see is writ large on the wall behind us. That's where we are in Bedford Square uh, in London. And my guests today uh, are, well, I'm just going to introduce them uh, one by one. So uh, Joanna Shepherd, Joe Shepherd is director of Joanna Shepherd Conservation Limited and specializes in the, in the conservation of contemporary art. Hi, Welcome. <laughs> and, and Claire Fry is uh, a preventive conservation consultant and filming conservator at Spencer and Fry Limited, specializing in heritage conservation. So we obviously the theme this week is conservation, but I've invited both Joe and Claire because we've got these two angles perhaps on uh, the conservation of heritage, if you like, and the conservation of contemporary art. Uh, they overlap and differ, as I hope we will find out during the, the course of the conversation. So, starting with Claire, can you tell us, Claire, how you became interested in, how you first maybe became interested in art, and then, then it's conservation, and maybe working, what interesting working with older art, as we might call it, Actually, often my students call it dead art, such in the detriment of classicists, I think, and, uh, and heritage. Okay, so um, so growing up, I love history, really interested in history, and my parents used to um, sort of drag my sisters around National Trust houses, but I used to go quite willingly. And then there's a certain one on Coton Court where they had found a gunpowder plot and they signed the window, and you can still see this. And I just had this moment that they were here in this room, and it's still like this. And um, you know, all the artifacts and the objects were, were there, and thinking this is incredible. So I loved history, but was very strong on maths and science when I was at school. So I didn't think there'd be a sort of career that would fit. But um, but I was very, very lucky because I did some work experience at the British City Museum. So I wanted to be a curator. And uh, on a Friday, the curator was ill, so I spent the day in a conservation lab, and that was it. That was just, I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, was, um, was, was well, they asked me to pick some glue off an ancient Egyptian stone, and I just thought, this is a job, how amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so very romantic on one level, it does. Like, the Egyptian stone statue is very romantic and archaeological, and Indiana Jonesy, dare I say it, yeah. with the new film now launched. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to see it, I guess. Um, and um, But picking the glue off is, uh, I guess this is kind of the nature of conservation, isn't it? You're working with very sort of amazing stuff, and but sometimes you're working with the with kind of enemies of that that material. Absolutely, yeah. And it's really fun about materials. So mm. sometimes you're working on something, and you have to remember that it's actually a really interesting object. But you sort of just thinking of it in materials and the way that those materials react, and mm. how they can prevent conservation, how they can deteriorate. So, um, mm. so you do get quite logical about it, don't you? And every so often you just have a wow, this is incredible. <laughs> And the education qualifications um, listeners would be interested in, um, who, what kind of education qualifications were kind of required for you to then achieve a career goal to be a professional conservator? So I, um, so I spoke to universities, and at the time when I went to study, the main courses were at Cardiff University and UCL, so I contacted them and they said I had to have a chemistry A-level, mm -hmm. so I studied chemistry, then did a degree in archaeological conservation, so went in through that route. And then a postgraduate care of collections, internship at the National Trust, 
Um, and then, yeah, that's three years at English Heritage and then Central Five. So that's how I got into it. So internships, even then, if I may say so, were very, I mean, it seems to be kind of quite a modern word internship with my students, but it's something that was has always been important, you know, yeah. to get experience and put it on your CV. And, and, yeah, it's yeah. very different in conversation to get a work, get a job without experience and to get experience without a job. So internships are great because um, it's paid. And I work with some amazing people in the National Trust who are, you know, certain authors in the book who are incredible conservators. So it was, yeah, for me, it was a really great way of getting into that world. So. Yeah. And maybe we could talk, I might come back to you here to explain to our international listeners about what the National Trust, you know, basically what it is. So we might come back to that okay. later on. So, so Joe, um, can you tell us about your early experience of the art world and your part of becoming a conservative this time of contemporary art? Well, I draw. It was, um, I, I was always fascinated by drawing and painting from a really early age and loved art at school. But quite quickly, I was persuaded to go down the academic route and the general consensus was, well, you'll never get a job. Pick your best subject at college. And so I started with French, hated it, and changed to art history, which was just a joy. It was so interesting. Um, and towards the end of it, I wasn't really sure how I was going to use it. And we got taken to a symposium that the National Gallery held in London called Paintings as Physical Objects. Mm. And where I'd say spent three years looking at paintings very much in terms of style, stylistic development, or maybe feminist art history, suddenly this symposium introduced the idea of artworks in terms of their ingredients. So suddenly that portrait of a woman was um, a layer of ground up pigments in an oil medium on a cloth stretched around a wooden structure. And also talking about all the analytical techniques, x-ray, infrared, so techniques that allow you to see below the surface and start to sense how something's been built up. And it absolutely blew me away. And that was my sort of, that was my light bulb moment. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And then, uh, but my training, I went, I got into the courtold, which um, re required submitting a portfolio. You had to really show a high level of attention to detail and manual skills. And uh, although I had the art history degree, I had to go back to school and do GCSE chemistry to demonstrate at least a competence in, in that kind of science. Uh, you need a reasonable understanding of, so that you can read things like safety data sheets and grasp the chemistry that underscores conservation, even if you don't have a degree in it. Um, but it was all old master at that point. And then my initial internship was old master in Holland, working with 17th century Dutch paintings. And then fast forward, I, I got a job in Dublin at a gallery that acquires uh, modern and contemporary art, the Hugh Lane Gallery, which has the Bakery Studio. Mm -hmm. And one of the first big shows we did was a uh, contemporary artist called Patrick Scott, and everything was raw canvas, gold leaf, um, synthetic modern paints, and it had been hanging out in private houses over peat fires, water stains, and I was so, it was so different, and it was like a, a very steep learning curve, and emailing like the Guggenheim and Momo for suggestions and tips on how to how to deal with these things because you couldn't possibly touch them with solvents or water in the way that you would a traditional painting and and then gradually just it was um i worked at the gallery for 13 years and over that time we we led works worldwide we were constantly talking to living artists and it was such an enjoyable process that very dynamic 
dialogue with people who are very strongly opinionated about their work and, and are needed to guide what you do to it. You you can't, um, it's so non-traditional, each artwork is so specific that you really need to involve the creator of it. Um, so that was my path in, really. Did you sometimes find that the creator wasn't as aware of the materials as you were on one level? They were, when they were aware of how they worked with them, but maybe they weren't aware of what chemically or what physically they were made. Did you ever find that, that they were slightly ignorant of the chemistry and physical makeup of the material, or, or were they very, very, always very aware of that? I think it varies. Mm. Um, younger artists, from my experience, certainly seem to be taught relatively little about mm. technique, whereas, say, in more traditional training, um, certainly maybe even in the 50s and 60s, um, People were taught to build a picture, you know, how to prime the canvas, how to stretch it, size it. Whereas now there seems to be a lot of emphasis on even things like branding and how you promote yourself, manage your career, how you are. I quite often hear this um, expression, intellectually rigorous, being intellectually rigorous about your work. So you have to discuss your work. But often there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of potential in that when you start to work with an artist you can say well you know that PVA you used did you realise there was a more stable alternative exactly. and sometimes they're interested and other times they're not and you work with what, what you get basically absolutely and the education and qualifications for, were they similar to players I guess so I mean to, do you need to get into yeah how did you then have to did you then have to guide your education to um, I suppose you pretty much already said how you got oh, there. So, an yeah. internship in Holland, which was... Yes. And yeah. then, actually, I did get straight go into the job straight after that, and then it was so straight on in. But, yes, you're yeah. right. Internships, as Claire said, are really important for young conservatives. You, it's great to be sort of mentored quite close, closely in the early stages to sort of just build up your confidence as much as you yeah. can, I think. Yeah. And, and I was going to... Thank you. And I, I was going to ask um, Claire... Uh, I mean, most professions have some kind of professional guild or body uh, behind them. And I think the one, as I understand it, for conservation is ICON, I-C-O-N. So, like, Claire, could you explain what, can you remember what I-C-O-N stands for? Could you tell us about ICON as an organisation? So, ICON is the Institute of Conservation based in the UK. Yeah. Um, there's also the International Institute of Conservation, which is also based in the UK. But ICON is a uh, professional membership body for um, not just conservatives, but anybody who is working in the conservation of uh, cultural, historic, um, heritage art. Um, and it's also a charity, so it is to raise the profile of conservation to educate the public. Um, and it runs apprenticeships actually they've started, so maybe that's along the same lines of internships. And um, and they're both accredited, aren't they? Yeah. So accreditation. Um, is that something you want to say something about? Yeah, sure. It's um it's something that's more conservatives are increasingly doing. I don't know when did accreditation come in. I'm not sure. It's been yeah, just over twenty years. Right. So basically, it's like a peer reviewed. Um, you can apply from five years after qualifying. Mm -hmm. And you have to submit a portfolio of five or six complex projects, complex being defined as um, where you're marshalling a wide range of resources or there are several potential outcomes or uh, several potential routes a treatment might take, including doing nothing, all of which have quite different outcomes. So where you'd have to use a high degree of judgment as to which is the best 
decision for the situation. So projects that demonstrate that kind of um, complexity and high level of skill. So you split those uh, and they have to tick off 37 professional standards in all areas of assessing an object, providing options, carrying out conservation treatments, um, documenting everything, and then judgment and ethics, yeah. things like that, and CPD. And then basically the assessment day is a full day where you get two assessors come to your studio and grill you. Well, they're very, they grill you very nicely. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, but it's a, it's quite, it's a tough. It's and it's they will they're looking for clear evidence of every single one of those standards to pass, and you have to meet proficient, which is like this like competent, non-competent, non proficient expert. You have to get proficient in all. So by the end of it, you need therapy. <laughs> you need therapy <laughs> that day. Yeah, so it's a very tiring day, but it's um yeah. So if you get through that, it's it's like getting I suppose chartered exams. Well, you really kind of are thinking at some point about getting a chartership. Oh yeah, right. So it is, it is equivalent. Yeah, yeah. So it's that sort of level of achievement, and it's basically just I suppose it's quality control. Yeah, so if you're using the credit concert, you know that they've got all the skills, experience, they keep their training up to date, and they've proved that they can make ethical decisions. Yeah. Yeah, and, and presumably there's a website that listeners can look up and find out more about ICON themselves, but presumably it has a members-only area where you have to yeah. log in. Um, but what I was going to ask you is on the public's website, which I assume it has, mm -hmm. is there a code of ethics there that listeners could read about? Yes. And what... Is there a, there's a code of conduct, yeah. Code of conduct. Um, and there's loads of actually really helpful information about how to look after all different materials. Yeah, the ethics of yeah. that. Yeah, so you've got around silver, how to clean the silver properly. I don't know what to them, just saying, you know, because I was concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and well, while we're talking about ethics and conservation, um, maybe Joe can start with this first. Maybe you could talk about, to, to my from my experience, it sounds like it's changed a lot. So when I first went to the British Museum, I would look at like an ancient Greek vase, and um, you know it would you could see most Greek vases, as you know, ancient Greek vases, as you know, are found in archaeology, shattered, and you can if you look close, you don't have to look that closely to see it's being put back together again like a jigsaw. Um, and as I understand it, they used to use um, like red glues that we now realise are actually very bad for the future of the object and so on. Whereas now, and the other thing I used to notice about Greek vases is, is um, there was a tendency when I first looked at them to complete, if the painting had come off like a famous black figure, that sometimes is missing or colours are missing. They would, you know, the conservators or restorers, we might call them, would actually repaint it so the whole thing looks pristine as possible. Whereas nowadays, the same vase, I'm thinking about one in the British Museum, the Sophilos Demos Crater, um, the, the Dinos on a stand is quite famous early back figure. The first ever signed work in, in the history of art. It's actually got Sophilos Fengrafsen on it, which is right. Sophilos painting its early 6th century. And that, as far as I know, that's the earliest ever signature. Um, and uh, but now it has these orange areas, which is the, the oxidized background of the clay with the black figures on. Um, but anything that's missing, they, they, they just put the orange in. Um, so it doesn't look as aesthetically pleasing, but it does show us what was being conserved and what's original. Um, so, I mean, in your opinion, has how maybe with contemporary art has conservation, the ethics of conservation, has that changed since you first started working? Um, has it changed? I think the principles I was taught 
when I was training, mm. hold up that yep. you know the main principles are, for example, I mean the intent, the artist's intent. What is this object supposed to look like? Mm. How is it made? Understanding its materials and techniques in detail, um, intervening as little as possible to make something stable and presentable. And really importantly, making it reversible, documenting what you do and making it as reversible as possible. Now, that's not always achievable. So if you want to introduce an adhesive and it's going to run into the structure, realistically, you aren't going to get all of that out. Mm. But where possible, you you might then choose an adhesive that's maybe already present in the object to some extent. So it's not going to interfere or cause harm. But you try to make something um, reversible in reasonably gentle, simple, even gentle, simple methods. Um, partly because it's quite possible down the line that there'll be a better way of doing it, or it will have aged badly, and somebody might want to replace what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, how it, has it changed? I suppose the thing that changes is that some conservation can be a bit subject to trends at times. So back in the days, there was a big vogue for lining paintings because it was set them up really well for the future. And now lining is, is known to be a very invasive process. So it would be done in extreme situations, not as a routine measure. Um, so I think people are a little, hopefully a bit more, a bit more cautious about intervening. I had a boss years ago who said, actually, we'll be the generation known for doing nothing because <laughs> we do err uh, on the side of caution a lot more, I think. Does it sound like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think because I suppose there's, um, you know, as a profession, we're still quite young and developing. I think that's what's interesting about it as well is that there's conferences all the time where people are still talking about ethics and approaches and there's new ways of doing things and um so I suppose that's part of the connotation is that we're always learning, we're always updating our knowledge. So we are still learning. I think still is of a generation that that you know my arc in the sixties isn't as brilliant and it's smooth all over everything and then it kind of spits links and we can't get it off. So I think we've sort of had those lessons of to be careful. And actually my whole job what I do is is assessing and managing risk. So you don't want to be part of the risk. Um so so yeah, then I think ethics as well, it's you know, you're talking about the artist still being alive and that's an issue that I don't have <laughs> quite often. Um but I do have clients and they will have different views on what they want their objects to add on their collections to to look like. So I spent the first 15 years of my career in the National Trust and the Heritage. So uh, historic house organisations that preserve historic houses as they kind of were sort of you know in time and they do a lot for public engagement and um you know uh, interpretation that's all great but things are left as they are and you know that is the original surface and that's the surface you're with and then I started working for how you know people that had their own collections and they wanted to look shiny you know it's gold I wanted to look and beautiful again. So you're constantly in every case having to assess, you know, sort of the ethics of what you're doing and how you're interacting and, and yeah. I mean, I think I think in the art market, you there are some. I'm not going to name any names, but there are some people like dealing with old masters and classic modern work, which is now already quite old. Um, who who whose collectors want the thing to look pristine. So, as I understand it, they will often do things with it that are actually really bad for in 20, you know, I've heard other conservators say that in 25 years, by using this thing that makes it look like a pristine old master, it'll probably deteriorate at a certain point. I don't know how true that is, but 
they, they, they're often doing some things, as you say, which are actually really quite harmful in the long term to the work, just to make, just to sell it, if you like. You tend to see that maybe more in the art market. And I do think there's a bit of a division there that, as I understand it now, when I go to the British Museum and look at their conservation ethics and read their conservation reports, they're really very careful, you say, not to intrude as, to intrude into the object as little as possible. So that to preserve it, that's one of the icon ethical codes, the International Council of Museums, I've noticed, is that to preserve the future generations, to make sure it's still there for future generations. But one of the things that strikes me about what both of you have said is it's very similar to developments in medical surgery, where surgeons now, they used to take the bone, you know, they used to be intrusive and do an operation. Now, if they don't have to do that, they won't. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that it's, it's quite interesting, the ethics of surgery, where they're saying, oh, it's better just to leave that. And they never used to say that. Uh, you know, they used to, surgeons couldn't wait to get their hands on people, you know, and I think yeah, that's something. Didn't they used to give um, people as a 21st birthday present, you get all your teeth and that, and then leave that. And I always think that's, you know, no one would dream of doing that. Yeah. And when, I remember when I was a kid, or now I know, I couldn't work out why I have so many fillings. And now, historically, apparently, it's NHS. The dentists were getting a lot of money for every every filling they gave the kid. So you'd have these horrible injections that used to really hurt then. And um, and now I know that probably none of them were actually decayed. Oh, um, that's quite well known now. So yeah, so yeah, yeah is you know, is the coming back to the Sophilos files in the British Museum where which is the first signature, the signature itself is quite interesting, I think, for a conservator, because it says Sophilos painted me. And I often say to my students, that is the that's the bar speaking to the viewer. You know, it's not like Vincent on the corner. Vincent is the painter. It's actually reflexive, saying "Pay to me." And I say, I, I think conservators, you know, they they kind of all you you handle this object as though it's a living human being, and that can be an approach to the object. Almost, I don't know if you if that's ever come through your mind that you're almost dealing with an organic living thing when you're it's working. Career, or for me, what's the word for it, isn't it? But sometimes you do. You end up talking to things, and you think that's really. You get very fond of things. There's certain works when you leave the studio, it's really, you feel quite, really sad to see them go. They're really gorgeous to have around. As do artists. But we do, maybe with the owners of arts who might have to sell it at auction because they need to live with passion and country house. But, you know, I know that artists I've spoken to they often have a work that they really just don't want to yeah. sell because they just like it themselves or the family likes it. Right. Um, but um, so thank you for that. So so Claire, can you explain what's meant by preventive conservation and maybe give some examples from your own experience? For example, maybe your recent work with Stonehenge, which I know you've been working with in the in the new interpretation of Stonehenge. Yeah. So well, it's interesting you talked about medicine earlier because quite often conservation and medicine are compared. Mm. So preventive conservation is um, is managing the risks, the agents of deterioration, we call them, that can lead to deterioration or damage of an object. So um, things fading in light, thinning by insects, going to dampening, going moldy. So just kind of like preventive medicine, we're the people that, you know, exercise, drink lots of water, eat well, and then you'll be healthier for longer. And it's not mutually exclusive instead of interventive conservation. They kind of work together mm -hmm. and they do overlap. So um, 
that's kind of the idea. It's just managing risks, and we can't preserve everything forever. We're going to have to admit that. Um, but it's about slowing down deterioration and keeping things sort of in good condition as long as we can. So I'm just trying to think of some examples of Stonehenge. Actually, so that's when I work back in the charity, and I was a concerto that helped put the Stonehenge Visitor Centre together. Um, I'm just trying to think that that was, in some ways, that was sort of helped by the fact that some of those materials are really, really old. So stone and flint have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of easy to look after as opposed to modern plastics and before <laughs> then. So it was more about trying to mount things so they were very visible to the public. And um, we had bits of gold to make sure they were secure. Um, we the first exhibition actually was an amazing exhibition of manuscripts. So we had to have display cases that controlled the temperature, like the humidity, light levels. Um, yeah, I think that's the. An earlier conservation lecture that you probably know, um, Rest in Peace, Bob Child. Yeah. He used to come a lecture to us about character. He, he did an exercise with us students. He gave them a piece of paper that we had a handout, and he would have different materials like stone, flints, plastic, glass, etc. And he then had these another column with saying, Can you drop this? What temperature do you yeah. range? Do you think this will suffer? So he would say one by one, well, I've got a piece of flint or stone. If I drop it, will it smash? Might do, <laughs> you know, but less likely to than maybe another piece of glass. And then, then he always ended up in his jokey way with um, a human being. You know, if you drop your little sister from what height will you, can you drop them from before they <laughs> break something or hurt them, you know? And what sort of temperature range can can we tolerate, which is actually really interesting, really scary when you read that with human beings. It's a very narrow range, I understand, of, you know, compared to some of the materials that like, we're working with. Um, but I'm sure that we're coming, I, I think there's going to be other examples um, from, yes. from Claire's experience, obviously we'll come to in a bit later on. But so, so Joe, maybe you can explain how your work maybe is similar to, to your, your work, mainly in contemporary work, what is similar maybe to Claire working with um, older objects, heritage objects, and maybe how it, how it might differ. Um, and, and again, give some examples of particular problems you encounter maybe working with contemporary art. You've already done that to a certain extent, but you might have, you might want to talk with Claire about similarities and differences in your practices. Well, I suppose, um, like you, we do quite a lot of risk assessments. So for example, um, a good example might be a few years ago, we had a couple of um, painted wooden sculptures that ended up in trees. Uh, we worked on them in trees. And they were really beautiful little works, um, but very, very fragile indeed. And if they had been knocked off their plinths, they would have smashed without a doubt. And um, so I, straight away, you could see why. But knowing, having examined them, this is a, clearly a risk. Um, and uh, so speaking to the client, oh, um, how are you planning to display these? Um, and they would sort of describe the situation where they would be on pits with, you know, what crazy like people walking around everywhere. That's so you're body. thinking about the audience. The yeah, people. absolutely. Knowing where they would end up, taking, I suppose, taking responsibility for that situation, because you're in a position to point out the risk. You can see it's going to be a risk. So um, I said, well, would you consider public plinths? Uh, oh, no, 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 couldn't do that. No, they need to be exposed. Right, would you realise 
that this is, you know, if they do get knocked off, which is quite a large, quite a significant possibility in an environment like that. Um, anyway, they, they categorically would not. So we devised a way of very discreetly securing them to reduce that risk. Um, so as, as a step, as an add-on to the treatment we, we had carried out, cleaning and stabilising them for display, we also made the risk of them getting damaged on display a lot less. And at any, any event, they were so exposed, I'm amazed they didn't get damaged, but we did as much as we could. And again, it was sort of um, having to communicate with people in different countries uh, with completely different remits and interest in what what was being achieved. You know, some people with much more commercial focus, us with more risk of risk averse focus. But on a daily basis, we we often um, we fit a lot of backboards to paintings. That's a very common way to improve protection and insulate them better. And just things like so, we have a really large painting studio at the moment, which is very awkward to carry and lift. It's enormous and very That's heavy. <laughs> yeah, that's um, so it. No, um, it's it's very big and heavy, and we can see that people have been gripping the edges and pressing on the canvas, which is you know causing dents. Yes. So we fitted very simple fabric webbing with straps on the back that allow you to pick it up okay. with very little contact with the edges. And so straight away, it's not going to get handled damage in the same way. And it's just something we said to the client, which you consider it's they're like, oh yeah, great, do that, that'd be nice. And they just tuck behind the painting when it's on display. So just simple things like that would make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Coming back to those wooden scul like sculptures, would yeah. you call them? Um, and, and, and the, so you're trying to please the, the artist in the gallery in terms of presenting these potentially for sale yeah. to a collector. So they've got to look aesthetic. Yeah. And so you're also there trying to make a decision about how do you stabilise this and, and, and deter risk, potential risk with something like freeze where there are thousands of people walking yeah. around and crowded. Yeah. Um, but also how do you make them look attractive? You know, to the viewer, so that's quite a difficult balance sometimes. And again, you maybe need to speak to the artist or their representative client. What they are you going to be okay with this? Exactly, that's exactly what we did. So we mm. had conversations with the artist, conversations with the gallery, um, and they were the main two stakeholders in that treatment. Um, so yeah, one guy didn't live the aesthetics, and mm. another sort of discussing what they were prepared to pay for. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess it, I guess because it's contemporary. In my mind, you, you know, you're kind of thinking, well, it, it, it must, it can't be damaged because it's new. Yeah, that's a common. <laughs> Whereas with you, in your mind, obviously, you're constantly, I think people are, the public are more aware when they go into like an English country house, this, a lot of this stuff is fragile. And, you know, the, the kids might go running up and try and touch something. You have to tell them why you can't do that. But I think most people probably realise it's a bit more fragile. Where with contemporary art, maybe they're not so aware of that. Sorry, I mean, gosh, what we had, we had uh, Joss Dickburn in one of them. Uh, that must be fixed. Somebody had been eating, clearly been eating quite vigorously in front of one of the paintings, and it had like literally plots of tomato seeds yes. splashed on it. That was another one. But then you have to also check that that wasn't the original yeah. artist's materials. Well, yeah, no, unfortunately, that was clearly not. We had a painting that just mended a tear in a painting that was opened using a box cutter. That slashed a great tomato uh, what else do we have? Lots of things. And also just the main thing with contemporary art is it can't you it can't tolerate a scratch or a knock. It's so visible on something that's meant to be a uniform, pristine, matte 
a colourful surface. There's no detail often to disguise these damages, so they're disproportionately visible and distracting. So, um, yeah, also, yeah, and they're difficult to clean a lot of the time. Anything will get dirty if you leave it in a, an exposed mm -hmm. environment. Absolutely. I remember actually at Sotheby's Bond Street, there was a contemporary art sale, a post-war contemporary art sale, and I remember they, they showed us a, it was a Basquiat, and um, um, unframed as they often are, and, uh, and, and the, the specialist pointed out, look, we, if you look around the sides of the canvas on the, on the edges, you know, it's, it's white or kind white, um, you can see these sort of dirty finger and thumb marks. And we had to kind of try and work, you know, we were trying to work out, have we got Basquiat's fingerprints when we ever in jail? You know, could we contact the New York Police Department? <laughs> you know, because we because it's very important to us if these are handlers' fingerprints, then a conservator might say ethically we should remove them. But if they're Basquiat's, the artists, they, they have an interest in themselves. And, and another, just, I mean, you might want to comment on that, but just another thing when I think about it, uh, at the auction house. Um, I remember a specialist once picking up this uh, Fontana, you know, slice painting. You, you, you probably both know those where he primes and stretches the canvas and six months later he takes a razor blade with nanoseconds, cuts through it, and that's the work of art. Um, and this person picked up the, the painting that wasn't framed again. They usually aren't for Fontana's um, without white handling gloves on. And I remember some of my logistics colleagues got, because we did an MA in logistics, I actually got a picture of this on Instagram and I got a lot of quite um, aggressive responses saying, where are the white gloves? Oh, yeah. and, and in the end, I had to take the post down. But I remember being in the Van Gogh Museum in I took the students there for a lunch break and the conservators were talking about it was a hockey exhibition was on and they were talking about handling you know they were the installed they were the curators and stores and they were saying the oh, the paint hadn't dried and then we were and, and I said what about with gloves help they said no it would have damaged it more so it then introduced us this idea of I don't know what I'd like just like your views on this so maybe maybe Claire with, with like an old master should you or the, the, the alternate heritage object should okay. you use gloves so conservatives can talk about gloves for hours. Yes. Like in, in the pub, talking about gloves. <laughs> great at parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are materials that it's better. Not so if we're handling metals, anything gilded, um, we would always wear. So we, we don't wear white cotton gloves. That just seems to be a thing that people like in photographs. Mm -hmm. um, but usually nitrile gloves um, or sort of some alternative that's more environmentally friendly. This we ought to stop oils from our hands getting yes. on causing corrosion. There's some great photos of people that handle metals and you can see their fingerprints now corroded in the metal surface. Mm -hmm. So we wear gloves for that. Some people, ceramics, won't wear gloves if they're in the building because they'll get a better grip. Um, things like paper, books, manuscripts, quite often people wash their hands and then handle them so they've got more hand dexterity so you're not trying to sort of grab, grab at things. So, um, but I know that um, I've spoken to colleagues at uh, places like the British Library and they've been on programmes and they, people have written in saying, how dare you handle things without gloves? So it's sort of built into public perception now that you should wear white gloves to handle things, but it's not always the case, so mm -hmm. the heritage. Yeah, with contemporary art, I, I mean, that, as I say, these are examples which caused a, a huge rumpus and a controversy about, you know, wearing the gloves and... I remember them speaking to that specialist and they said actually, you know, that that it 
late and feel as though they are doing any damage and it's easier to hold you know because these things that slip out of your hands and do more damage so was that kind of art i've heard that argument but you could say that if you're good i think you're right i think i see you know sometimes you see a transport company sort of show on instagram sort of showing how they done a beautiful job and you're like well, why aren't any of you wearing gloves it's mm-hmm. like maybe there is a good reason but if there is maybe you, you should say you that to say yeah. so yeah definitely yeah. so if you're, if you're in and out of a lorry your hands are going to get dusty yeah. or often taken some yeah. houses yeah. where there's dust built particularly or houses where there's a lot of build up of dust and so on yeah. um, <laughs> i mean the we have paintings in the institute i remember there used to be a row of paintings up the staircase of building because these are two houses, 30 that we're in now, and 31 Nestor, and they, they're both, uh, you know, rented by the Institute. Conde Master, who you notice, the, they've now moved in, that's the, they're in the other building, and so we had to remove these paintings that were contemporary, and they were um, by a guy called Simon Morley, who used to teach at the Institute in, in the MA Fine Objective Art, but he, he did so well as an artist that he's now a working artist still. And he did these paintings, he was commissioned by the Institute earlier to do these paintings for the Institute. And basically there, each one of them is about this sort of size, and each one is a, a famous Sotheby's sale catalogue. So it's got the famous 1958 Peter Wilson sale, where, which is the first televised celebrity black, you know, a dinner suit um, uh, sale of only seven, in, you know, impressionist, post-impressionist, so it's very, very famous. So it's, it's what we believe to be when the auctions became a glamorous, a glamorous occasion, like an evening sale would go out to dinner. But, uh, so that was one of them, the cover of the original catalogue. And they're all different colours. So the Elton John, uh, he was selling off his wardrobe, and um, he's just been on a Glastow, of course, on the, on the, on the last yeah. of the stage. It's possibly his first final concert, so he might be selling more now, but it was pink. <laughs> so even the colour choices of these, but, sorry, coming back to the conservation thing, I just noticed that there was a lot of really, really greasy, because we're in the middle of London, greasy dust. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the cleaners had rightly been told not to remove it. And I used to, it was there, I shouldn't be saying this, but it was kind of there for a long time. Mm. And I used to wonder whether I could bring some kind of very light brush in and just try and brush it off. But then I thought, if it is greasy, like the grind we got on our windowsills under a flight path in London, yeah. it, it could spread the grease so mm-hmm. do you often encounter those i mean Claire, you must encounter this all the time where you've got dust that might have yeah. grease so so uh, <laughs> dust removal is huge because it takes time and money so houses have spent a lot of time removing dust and it is good to remove dust because it can have pollutants in that can react it can be hydroscopic it can um you know, encourage insects to... So what's hydroscopic? Also can attract moisture. Okay. And then you've got sort of more higher moisture levels on your surface. Okay. So it's not great to have on. And then there's been lots of research into dust and objects that at certain humidities, it can then turn into dust and it starts to attaching through different ways. So cementation and calcium bonds, it can attach the object and then it's hard to remove. So it's good to remove it once there's dust. Yeah. But removing dust or, you know, using the wrong thing, so mm-hmm. furniture polish, Graph or things like that are really bad. <laughs> so removing dust incorrectly can cause lots of damage too. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I used my lecture for case of some uh, cleaning ladies in a ceramic in the present. And um, it could have been worth a million, but it's only worth 92,000 because she'd rubbed the enamel off because she cleaned it so often. So it's that frequency as well. So we spend a lot of time <laughs> working with people about how often they clean and how they clean things. 
because um, the trouble is if you don't let people call things, I remember, I won't say where it was, but we had some polychrome saying it's quite early and we were really wondering how we could remove the dust from them. And whilst we were doing that, someone thought, well, they're a bit cobwebby and came on the dice and just start keeping them off. Oh, so, um, so, so it's that level. It's always just constantly mm -hmm. judging the level that's appropriate. So there are other vacuum cleaners. There are other vacuum cleaners. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you would have to, as a conservator, and, and this is presumably can be true of contemporary art, which gathers dust like Simon Morley's paintings, um, you'd have to try and work out first what that dust is. I mean, could you remove a little bit and... Do you have to test? Do you look at it under a microscope? Do you have to test we it? That? We remove dust and we look under a microscope. Yeah. That's something called a particular atlas. Yes. <laughs> but you can identify where it has come from. Because actually that's quite interesting because some properties even say, you know, it's your gravel outside. So if you change the gravel, then you have less dust coming in, or it is coming from outside, then you need better netting. Or um, English Heritage did some work at Apsley House where they realised that the dust levels in windows open. Is the same as 130 days with the windows shut. So just closing the windows helps dust levels. So that's the first line of defense of trying to stop things to become dusty in the first place. Um, so we do, yeah, we, uh, we just did a project up in um, in the north where we, uh, we removed um, dust and we had a vacuum cover uh, with some textile on it and we then, yeah, it looked It's like they say if you're trying to find something with your own vacuum, can you put like a nylon over it or, yeah. and it stops the thing getting sucked up? Yes, and actually it. what we found yeah. really useful as well is, um, so I think conservation, we're always borrowing from other industries, mm -hmm. so we're looking at the medical, mm -hmm. we're looking at medical advances, so for mould control, we're looking at what hospitals are trying to do to keep down sort of mould, and um, there's a really interesting lecture I went to a few years ago about uh, all this skincare research into collagen, people that look after manuscripts are really interested in that, about how sort of looking after dead skin and, and, and alive skin. Um, but we can use some gels that are actually used by forensic police to take fingerprints. I was going to say, this is beginning to sound like forensics, so, where you said that it's the gravel outside, you yeah. find it on the shoe and that allows you to... So we use forensic yeah. sheets, I think it's even come to And there has been, there was a poster done at some conference, I think, by... I think by the Dutch Conservative that they don't do any residues, they know it's safe to use because of the research, and you can get the dust off that way. So, um, so yeah, we're always looking at other industries as well and how they're developing because you think they've got more money for research. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so dust is actually a really interesting thing. <laughs> it's, it's huge, and, yeah. it, and it's because it takes so much time and money to pay people to remove it that houses are very interested in the best way of doing it. Yeah, and on a painting, it can really, I often think it's almost like dust on a painting is almost like a hangover on a person when you get it off it's like it just comes back to life yeah. uh, but also we find a lot of modern and contemporary works because they stay soft for so long you can find that some of the dirt just literally sinks into the paint if it's say for example we had a painting in the studio a few months ago where the artist had painted from the tube so the paint was really thick really heavy in pasto and it had clearly taken so long to dry and it had been left in a very dusty atmosphere in his studio. And we couldn't, and the paint was more sensitive. So when we actually, if, when we did our tests, we could see that if we had gone in, it was it sort of bonded into the surface of the paint and, and the paint was more soluble. So there was no, and the, just the specifics of the painting meant that there was no way to get the dirt off without disturbing the paint. So we had to sort of tell the client, well, really, this is a permanent, 
feature of this painting. Mm. Um, and if you went back to the artist, there's nothing they can do about it, they'd say, presumably. You barely anything. Oh. And this is one of the things that wasn't easy about it. Did it help that it was his dust in his studio? Yeah, in a way. It was authentic dust. Yeah. I just made a note actually earlier on that you mentioned the, the Francis Bacon studio yeah. in Dublin, which used to, of course, be in Soho, and they yes. moved it when yeah. Francis Bacon died, they actually yeah. moved the, it, so they got archaeologists in, as yeah. I understand it. And conservatives, so, yeah. a bunch talking about first job about leaving college. Yeah. Um, it was basically, it, the Hugh Lane um, was donated, the studio was donated to the Hugh Lane, and a, a great Irish conservative, Mary McGrath, project managed the conservation of it, and she had used, she used to employ us during the holidays, she had these amazing projects, um, large-scale projects, and she'd employ like, all your second years from the courthold. So she basically, there happened to be three or four, three of us living together at the time, we were all living in the same house in Islington. And she ran it and said, well, you've got this job, it's, it's, you, you've got to keep it completely to yourselves, it's, it's, it's not, um, you know, we need to just basically work three people. Totally confidential. Yeah, it's confidential, and, but you're all, you all know how to work together, and I need, and so basically we went in and the archaeologists did a, uh, I think it's called a geodetic survey, they mapped the room and did these beautiful elevation drawings of every shelf, the floor plan, and they would say bring a box, like a, a back 69 port box into from the studio side of Reese News, um, in Bacon's old studio apartment. They'd been taken from the studio into the living room where the conservation tables had been set up, and we'd work our way through the box from the top item to the bottom. We'd give each one a feature number and a brief description and pack them up for shipping. And we did that over a two-week period. We got everything out, the whole contents, the ceiling, the floor, and the paint marks on the walls. Right. It was amazing. And none of us took any photos because it was pre-internet and we did, it didn't occur to us. So there was this like no record that we have of this amazing project we took part in. No film or anything. Uh, there was official photography. Yes. So really good. Photography. But no, no, you think it would make a great. Film, the video moving. There was, there was, um, there was official photography and filming done. But I, what I mean is nowadays we would all been sucking it on our camera phones. Even if we couldn't share it, you'd be like yeah. so amazed, perhaps, at what you were taking part in. But I didn't um, realize you worked on that project. It's, yeah, it's really lucky. It was an amazing thing to be yeah. part of. Yeah. So then, July ninety seven, ninety eight, July ninety eight. It was packed up and. Shipped off, and, and then and then in Dub were you part of the yeah. installation in Dublin? Yeah. So can you say a little bit about how you then reinstalled it? Oh, it was it was catalogued over every item. I think there were seven and a half thousand items, mm. and they were catalogued over a two year period. Mm. Again, with a really great team in Dublin, and the database was made so that which is allowed you to navigate the whole collection. I think that's online. I think you can actually access that online. Mm. Um, so that was done. Uh, over a few year period, and then um, uh, part of the gallery was refurbished and redesigned um, to house the recreated studio. So we took the staircase was embedded in the floors. It was you could see the entrance process of how you would got up to the studio, and then the studio itself was recreated exactly. And we got a, uh, so the walls and the floor and the ceiling were reinstalled, mm -hmm. and then. Um, and then bit by bit all the all the objects were put back in reverse order. Except that anything that was um used by him, any source material, um, and 
103 unfinished canvases were retained for the archive and facsimiles put in so it looks appropriate it looks the same but all the original sort of material that he clearly had worked with was retained for scholarship and that's had a huge impact on Bacon scholarship there's been any number of exhibitions and books written about it based on that it's uh it's I think it's probably the resource for Bacon scholarship I think incredible and, and and just just one more question I would ask is um once that is installed in the Hugh Lane studio in yeah. Birmingham, um, and you can visit it now. So, yeah. so what is what are the conservation issues with with that? <laughs> you know, with preserving an artist studio. I mean, is there, what is there any? What would you advise? What do you have to do? And how often? Well, the studio is very carefully climate controlled, okay. as is the archive. Yes, because um, I have been there. Have you been there? It's really beautiful. Yeah, it's it's a, fascinating. It's a great gallery. Yeah, might go out to the um, you know, the Fontana, the the old master woman artist that's got a major exhibition in Dublin might go out there yes. this summer to mm -hmm. what's her name, Lavin Lavinia Fontana. Um and then yeah, go and must go and see yeah, the bacon and thing. But yeah. I get that's kind of so so they have have they got something round it which climate controls it or it's just a, it's an enclosed space. So you can't walk in so I see, you can I see. you you access it by there's like a kind of a glass cubicle into the doorway. Oh, wow. So you can sort of step into just inside the studio and then a decision was made to use the, win the windows, which were on yes. the south end of the room, um, were basically made available so that you can you look into the studio through the windows. Although originally they would have been on the first floor, they they were just it was the most uh, after several different sort of um, ideas about how it was going to be presented. Mm -hmm. That was the decision about how, and it works very well. So you get a good sense of. Of the kind of the chaos of the room, but also the logical. There's actually a sequence and an order to it that is not immediately evident, but it was he had a sort of a place for things. And interesting, yeah. the figure, and then of course, famously, and again to do with conservation, as I understand it, his artistic practice was he tends to get very drunk in the Soho pub, and he come, he worked through the night then in 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 a kind of frenzy. Um, and he literally throw things at the, at, you know, with dust and everything. He'd pick up cloths from the floor and throw them at the canvas. And when you look at a painting today in the gallery, you can actually often see hairs and dust on the paintings, which I assume are from that. That I think, um, yes. Unless that's a myth. Maybe that's a myth. He was a great storyteller, and let's mm. see, he didn't let truth stand in the way of a good story. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he was a famous Soho drinker. Yes. Um, but he was very, he knew what he was doing. Mm, yeah, and, and, and I've come to, because there's something I want to ask uh, there in a moment, but also um, he, he famously, when he was, he was a gambler and a drinker, so he'd never had any money, as I understand, when he was younger. He didn't have any money for fresh canvases. I don't know if this is a Smith, but that's he used to turn the canvas around and on the unprimed canvas, right. he would paint very spontaneously, which you have to do on the unprimed canvas. And he fell in love so much with that physical process that that, that affected his practice for the rest of his life. He's, that's what makes him so exciting to look at, just the speed in which he's doing these paintings and the spontaneity. Yeah. But is, are there any conservation issues with the unprimed canvas compared to the prime canvas? Um... It's, it's, I suppose, potentially, it's if you paint on raw canvas, the oil can degrade it to some extent. But in a way, the priming on the back 
um, sort of protects it to some extent. Um, his very early works tend to be somewhat fragile because they're so thickly painted. There's a weight okay. in the um, yeah. But that's an interesting. That's a good example of his um, myth making because that kind of he even says in an interview, "Oh, I was in Monte Carlo. I lost all my money." And I, I mean, you know, but lo and behold, Graham Sutherland had already been painting on the back side, oh, so they hung out continuously for a couple of years. They were very, very close friends mm. around that time, and he never mentions that link. He never kind of, you know, according to it's all just, you know, serendipitous. So, <laughs> he's a perfect type of guy, very interesting. Yeah. Using cameras is quite common. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Reading cameras are quite common. So there's yeah. um, so the Titians that they found other images, you know, turn them, mm -hmm. and yeah, so. Yeah, and that, that is a problem of um, display then, isn't it? You, you know, in conservation, again, do you remove the layer and find the, the work underneath? And that's like archaeology, it's going to damage the, you know, in Pompeii, whereas in my research, there's, there's a big issue, of course, because the, 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 the top layer is actually 2,000 years old as well. So if you dig through that, you're damaging a layer of archaeology to find an earlier period of Pompeii, which is, which is in itself factors. Now, it's going to come to clear, and I... I'd like to say something about creepy crawlers, like insects oh, in yeah. heritage houses, yeah. and you it's know. Huge. So, so dusty fig and um, insects have uh, taken a lot of our time as well. So we're just coming to the end of moth season. So mm. things like uh, beetles that um, are in wood and moths are a uh, huge problem. Fabric, yes. So the textiles that anything that's been part of an animal, so <laughs> silk, fur, feathers. Um, Leather to some extent, so yeah. So, usually, sort of a couple of months ago, we started getting the phone calls that people started seeing webbing clothes moths in their collections. So, um, so yeah, it sounds like it's that dust and bugs spend a bit of our time doing it. So, uh, yeah, so, so again, it's all about prevention, it's about keeping spaces clean, um, making sure that anything comes into a space isn't carrying anything with it. So, we do um, a lot of film supervisions, we make sure when props come in, they don't have any sort of um, not bring anything in with them. And then it's just about treating them. We're trying to go down more routes now that aren't insecticides, so we're not introducing lots of chemicals. The conservation profession is really trying to be more sustainable mm. in how we approach things. So yeah, so we'll freeze things or heat them or starve insects of oxygen, basically mm. trying to get Yeah, I remember at the um Southeast Warehouse um, where they store work. Often for quite long periods of time, you'd be amazed. People forget what they bought. They're, they're that rich, yeah. apparently. And uh, they, they have this, you might have been down there at Greenford, they have this climate-controlled area, uh, which where the oxygen content is low, so there can't be a fire. It's very, where all their very precious things are. But also they put stuff in there like carpets to kill off the, because it's very cold and it yeah. kills off some of the insects. Um, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have any, I mean, contemporary art, do you have to think about this? Yeah, yeah, woodworm comes in quite yeah. fairly often. It's modern in the so it's the, I suppose the earliest yeah. stuff we tend to deal with is maybe 1940, but yeah. mold is really common. You mentioned that earlier, and that's mm. catastrophic. It can be Even so recent. Oh, yeah, it gets, we had a beautiful little painting came in a few years ago uh, uh, on vellum that had been in a leak, under a leak, and it had grown a beard like crazy, and then the mold had grown for so long that it had caused black mold stains and it was so embedded and 
it can be impossible to get that out without you know, the kinds of things that would maybe reduce the staining are harmful to the artwork. So yeah, we've seen pests a few times. I think I've even you've got cool yeah, we've seen something yes. artworks on the publication institutions. Yeah. Um so Claire is one of the go-to <laughs> and also there's a, a really great contact in actually in the west of Ireland, um uh Lesser Frack College, they've had a lot of experience of dealing with um bugs. And they there's a like a, a heat treating method yeah. uh, where like these huge fans that come to your your facility and taking maybe taking objects as large as say a canoe or something really quite big mm -hmm. and gradually raise the temperature up and maintain it for a very long time until until the pest is killed basically. Mm -hmm. So but it can be a, a difficult issue depending on what the object can tolerate. You know, some objects can't tolerate extreme cold or heat mm -hmm. or or the kind of heat needed to kill the the vermin. Presumably, so. there's a lot of research papers that have experimented with materials that you can turn to to see what it will take. Is that the way you might work? I would work with an expert, basically, <laughs> no, no, because you can't you can't have all the expertise, and it makes more sense to talk to someone who deals with it. Absolutely. absolutely. Who can give you good advice? So there's a kind of overlap between the yeah, contemporary yeah. conservator and the yeah. heritage conservator. You're often working with similar. I was thinking actually when you were talking about those kind of organic materials that the Welcome Gallery in the British Museum, mm -hmm. with all the like folk arts, you might call it, the different materials um, hanging there. That there's that, that it's fascinating. All the different materials. I don't know if you know that gallery and walk through, but I I think through your eyes you must be looking at it thinking. That's interesting if you're a conservator at the British Museum. But what I was going to say actually is, do public, not for profit, you know, publicly funded museums and galleries, do they have their own? Because I think you both of you work both for non profit and for, for profit and private individuals who own heritage English country houses. Some of them are national trusts. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't explain what that was, but yeah. the charitable organisation yeah. that's publicly funded to a certain extent, whereas there's a lot of English country houses that are still owned by the Duke and Duchess of, yeah. and they 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 have to show, they have to be open to the public for inheritance tax reasons, yeah. and then you've got the public coming in, but both of you, I think, are working mm -hmm. in both sectors, the mm -hmm. private and the, what I was going to ask you both is, do you ever work for like a commercial gallery that might put pressure on you, let's talk about this earlier, to, to, to do something you really don't want to do, to make it look better, to sell, or don't you tend to work with dealers who might put pressure on you? Or... I think, so from, I think I came from such a kind of purist, everything was pristine, mm -hmm. pre-origin material, um, dealing with clients who, if their object, and it's a functional object, it might be in their family for 300 years, yeah. but it's the chair they sit on stuff dinner, um, and then sort of taste comes in that they will say, you want to alter it, you want to change it. Um, and then it's just about documentation, isn't it? But so some uh, so there's actually I think I've been told there's more houses in private ownership than there is in the National Trust and Heritage combined. So there's lots of private mm. houses. And that's the HHA very often the Historical yeah. Houses Association. Yeah. Um and and some of them are open to the public because they've been objects in the attack. Yeah. Um, in that scheme, but I think there's lots that aren't open to the public mm. and um, very rarely seen. But but then it's their object, and you know their house is listed, so they can't, you know, sort of listed building percent what they can and can't do with it. If they've been object in their attack, then they're certain, you know, they have to look after it. But if it's their object, mm -hmm. then it's their object to kind of do with as they want. So then it's sort of just saying, 
where that's interacting, and that is sort of can we can we keep the original material underneath? Can we photograph it? Can we document it? So it's just kind of guiding that process to be as and they own it, so they have a right to say what they to do what they, they do with they it. They could put it so, on the bonfire, they Yeah. But I guess I guess if they're smart, they're gonna bring someone like you in and you might do an assessment of every room in the house and say, actually I would put shutters on that window because the youth was are you ever asked to do that kind of assessment yes, of the whole we house? Do care plans, yeah. Um and we just started with insurance companies now as well. You were saying mm. can you come and buy so they can look after that? Interesting. Artworks to you know keep them in good condition. Yes, yeah, so and if they don't stick to that, we're not going to pay our insurance if the thing deteriorates. I'd like to think they'd say that we'd less of their insurance can after, but maybe I'm being a bit naive. Um, yeah. But yeah, sort of. But actually, it's an investment. So it's not just the significance of the heritage, but it's actually a, a valuable object that they want to stay as valuable as possible. I remember. I remember one of the slides Bob used to show was um, a wax. Object. I just trying to remember what it was, but um, I think it was a piece of folk art made of wax, like a doll or something. It was a doll, that's right, the wax doll, you know, Victorian oh. wax doll. And um, he 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 showed it as it was, and then he said they put it in this kind of gallery um, in front of a, a window that got the afternoon sun. Mm -hmm. And then they came in one afternoon and it maybe showed the photograph. <laughs> it was like a nice cream coat and melted. But I was going to ask Steve to maybe start with Joe. I don't know if you can think of an example of something really, you don't have to say who it is or where it is, but, but something that is really your, your worst, you know, the worst subject you've ever seen in terms of being a conservationist, in terms of the way it's displayed, or, um, you know, where it's something similar has happened. I don't know if you can think of an example. What, what there's lots well, <laughs> um, Like hanging a painting over a fireplace. We have a painting coming. Years ago, I think it was, and it had been hung. The client insisted on hanging it over a radiator and stretch a wall so dramatically it punched the frame out. It like punched a foot long piece of the molding, frame molding out. So we worked out what was going on. We restored the painting, sent it back, and said, Could you please choose a different location? And it's straight back where it was. So, it's, you know, and it's things like that. You can't really, as you've said, it's owned by somebody, you can only advise. Yeah. Mm. And then they just say, oh, yeah. yeah, we worked with one who thought, wouldn't it be nice if you can line the bathroom with a painting? So, <laughs> there's several bathrooms. Wallace Kletcher, the Titian person Andromeda, apparently he kept it in his bath, which is why that surface is deteriorated, is it? It's not ideal. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it's some surface, but some materials would be okay, maybe, in a humid, warm, Atmosphere. I guess, isn't it the changes that, like wood, is the change, the fluctuations yeah. which are problematic, hence climate control in a modern museum? Ideally, but even, yeah. even we're relaxing that now because I think that mm. we've gone for this kind of 50 to 65%, and mm. you know, it came from sort of best guesses in you know, uh, you know sort of mid 20th century, and now people are really questioning why we're spending a lot of energy and a lot of mm. money trying to control the environment quite so tightly. Mm. And it's not actually making fair principles for all materials. Mm. So, um, I think the uh, Arts Council reviewing the government indemnity, their environmental challenges at the moment, loaning institutions are being asked to be more flexible. So, you do need to control the environment, but we're trying to do it in more informed pragmatic way so we're not knocking lots of energy to create so this is about sustainability as well yeah because yeah. i don't remember the rubens master of the innocence that used to be the world record auction for an old master started his sold i think the early millennium um lord thompson of who was from canada and then he lent it to the national gallery 
But one of the reasons, as I understand it, it was it sold for so much was a experts could see from the brushstrokes it was all Rubens because he often worked, as you know, with with his workshop. And um, B apparently it had been it had been in a, a a rather damp but quite dark um, nunnery somewhere in Europe mm-hmm. for over about 150 years, and they said that the conditions were absolutely perfect. They, they just left it alone didn't bring conservators in it was very stable and that that's an example of sometimes just leaving something in the right environment yeah. i'm just thinking of those dark churches in sicily yeah. and you know where, where things seem to not be conserved but they look all right to my eyes on the surface and so sometimes it's better just to leave well alone sometimes it's, yeah but light, but light is light's a tough one because you like to see things yeah yeah, yeah. but i've got a good example where the early excavators didn't really didn't seem to realize that if you don't cover it from the sun yeah you know and i've been looking at all these wall paintings and i researched and they, they were there like 10 years ago 20 years ago and now they're no longer there because you can see maybe a shaft of light is just getting through yeah. and it's certain part of the fresco is just gone. Yeah. It's just that UV. And you can't get it back. So yeah, yeah the UV and the full light. I mean, you can cut the UV out quite easily, but, yeah. but this all light is still damaging. And, yeah. and I think I think ancient authors, like, someone like Vitruvius actually realised that, you know, when he's talking about frescoes, the architect that he talks about frescoes, he, he actually realised that, you know, you've got to keep this away from the light. And I, I think he said something strange like moonlight, so they didn't quite get what it was. <laughs> but I presume moonlight doesn't have UV. Uh, not. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not using overnight, but, um, but, but a lot of the most concept is, is kind of, a lot of the is very modern scientific um analysis and informing what we do but a lot of it we find that um we had learned a lot of work from looking through housekeepers manuals and they would go around following the sun and close the shutters because they didn't want the light on your objects and, yes. and still compulsory furniture would be sent with covers you know i think of the jane austen book where they say it would be so important they didn't take the paste covers off the short furniture so they digitized stuff and things that we just sort of lost they, were, they just understood that that was the way. Sometimes you just lose those old methods, I guess. That's what seems so expensive. Things are so disposable now. People maybe don't think about maintaining things. Yeah. Something. Yeah. I was going to ask Joe actually, while we're talking about materials and you talked about the insects and dust, yeah. <laughs> but I was going to ask Joe about, um, you know, contemporary artists uh, notoriously like to play with new materials and you know, that's part of their, pra- their, their practice and their philosophical process, if you like. Um, stretching materials and so on. I'm thinking of someone like Damien Hurst who uses household paint, and you, you know, quite often students say, "Surely that's not going to, you know, you have to repaint these. Are, this is household paint. You, we know you have to paint it after enough repaint it. So, what would happen to something like that if you had a Hurst where he's using household paint rather than conservation standard paint? Well, a lot of contemporary artists use non-traditional paints. Mm. Um, and even amongst, so for example, acrylic is a really common mm. general paint type. But even within that, there are many, very many different varieties. And one oh. brand's uh, acrylic paint will behave completely differently to another. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no getting away from it. That a lot of modern paints mm. are quite fragile. They are quite light sensitive. They're very prone to dirt pick up. They're mm. relatively soft films. Um, you just have to try to, again, this is where preventive conservation comes in, and it's so important, you know, how you handle a work, how you pack it, picking is a terrible one 
And it, I find that you were saying about do galleries um, put pressure on mm. me to do things that I don't want. What mm. often happens is they're very reluctant to spend money on things like transport and yeah. packing mm. because it's like, oh, that's, that's an awful lot of money. And you think it's, you know, you think, you know, spending, I don't know, a couple of hundred pounds on a transit frame is considered an unacceptable expense. And then, even with very wealthy people, the Southerners were told by their, that their logistics company says, I want the cheapest method. Yeah, so, I can spend millions on a work. Yeah, so for example, a job I did a few years ago, it really struck me this painting had been sold uh, by a gallery in Europe to a huge, huge gallery. Uh, in a in a in London mm. uh, had already been sold as far as I know, and it was shipped in about thirty quid's worth of polythene and cardboard. Mm. And when it was opened at the other end, with all this expectation and you mm. know everyone expecting to just receive this thing, mm. it had stuck horrifically stuck to its polythene, and which began a series of panic-stricken phone calls. Could anything be done? Would it show? Would the treatment be visible? Mm-hmm. It was salvageable. Mm-hmm. But by the time they finished paying viewing room fees, so it was viewed, it had to be viewed by various different people at the warehouse multiple times, mm-hmm. and quotes provided. I think by the time they had finished, it was probably about £10,000 at least. So the saving the on the transport. And not to mention reputational damage and all the rest. And the insurers coming in and saying we're not paying the insurance. What I was part of that part of it, but I remember thinking, my goodness, mm. that was, it was, you know, looking penny pinching mm. and then the consequences mm. of that were huge. And a lot of people would, you know, go straight for the bubble wrap. And if it marks the surface, you get these horrible circular marks. Mm. So, and they can be very difficult to treat or impossible or simply beyond the value of the work or what someone's prepared to pay. And highly unsustainable, of course, bubble wrap. Actually, yeah. the, the last podcast I, I, I did, which I haven't published yet, um, was Mitra Stevens, who did our logistics MA, and she won this. We have this entrepreneurial prize now, which gives a lot of money, like mm-hmm. uh, several tens of thousands of dollars for startups she won it and she works for Rockbox that have developed these sustainable crates reusable crates so she was she's her podcast talks a little bit about about materials in use in logistics which is what they 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 um, learned about obviously one of the main things they talk I think that's going to be a big area I hope it is because um I regularly visit um a, a particular transport company yes. and I think like many others every few weeks you just see a, a huge industrial side skip full of painting crates and I remember mm-hmm. when I worked in, in museums you would have these crates made at huge expense that only fit that painting yeah. and I used for four months to get them to and from a show and then they're thrown away and yes. it's because for them it's so difficult for a gallery or for someone in their own house it's, yeah. there used to be a company who rented them who I used a lot back yeah. in the day so lovely but they folded for very, I think I think they just basically decided to finish they, they've been in business for a long time and I believe their stock was bought up by other transport companies yeah. who are intending to do the same yeah. and, and I really hope that goes ahead because what they used to do was simply refit the interior so they would change the foam or add or take away but the basic crates stay the same and it's no. a really good but yeah. you do need somewhere with warehouse space to, to yeah. store all that as well, and then you have to get it to the person and back again. Of course, yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm aware of the time now, so I'd just like to thank... <laughs> yeah, it's gone quickly, isn't it? 
it always does. And I suddenly realized, oh, goodness, it's meant to be an hour. And I told people an hour. And it's like, and the listeners, I, I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but I, I don't really mind if you suddenly realize an hour and a week has gone by and you've been doing the washing up or lying in the bath. And it's, you know, but I, I, I hope that the, the, I think I'm pretty certain the listeners will find this really interesting and intriguing. So uh, I'd just like to thank um, Joe Shepherd and uh, uh, Claire Fry for, for, for contributing to this episode and hope everyone finds it interesting. I'll put I'll ask you for some links to put on the um, the website so people can, you know, uh, find your companies and so and so on and maybe some other things we've spoken about. Um, so th- thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.